0: Taking a slight departure today from our study through the Gospel of John to the book of Luke. Scripture for today is Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. You can find that in the Pewback Bibles in front of you if you would like to use them on page 874. 874. Luke 15. Jesus answering the Pharisees' You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. We are taking a break from the Gospel of John, where we've been for over a year now. Um, and so we actually just had a little bit of extra time uh, before we wrapped that up. And so um, we've decided to, to, to stop off in a parable and um, in, in one that, that's beloved and take a little bit of time on Father's Day to talk about the prodigal son, uh, or some people would call the prodigal father um, this passage. And um, I love the story. I love the story specifically on Father's Day. Um, I think that um, the prodigal parable um, is, is beloved. It's, it's a loved parable, one of one of the great parables, because it magnificently like shapes in a really extraordinary way um, the patience and the mercy of God's grace towards those He's saving. Which is really good news, no matter if you're like, don't know Jesus yet, or if you've come to faith, like it's great to hear a story like this that Jesus tells from his own lips that's, that just personifies God's mercy and his patience with us. Because we need that kind of patience, because um, when we look at a story like this, we're trying to plot like, who am I and why does this make sense to me? And um, just as a, like a little tip, like for biblical hermeneutics, the best thing that you can do when you look at a scripture is try to find the worst behaving person and then identify with them. Right? Like that's that's just good 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 hermeneutics. There, find the one that's acting the worst and go. That that's that's at l- I at least need to entertain that. That's me right there. Um, so so people love this this idea of of this. Um, lostness that's found, right? And, and the context is important here. It's one of three parables that Jesus is teaching us. And the context is that Jesus has been hanging out with sinners, right? Like he's, and, and the Pharisees have taken notice and they're like, hey, Jesus, like, why are you hanging out with all these, these sinners? And they're putting that on Jesus. And so Jesus responds rather than w- with just sort of strict words, sometimes like we see in John, but he tells three parables. And each of those parables has sort of the same critical main theme to them. So the context is the Pharisees are like, listen, you're a rabbi. And and, and, and what we think about a rabbi is somebody who's appalled by sin, who's appalled by sin and keeps free of sinners. That's what we think it looks like to be holy. And so they're complaining to Jesus. Now, I I sometimes like wanna give the Pharisees a little bit of a, a benefit of the doubt and think, man, maybe they just, they really love God and they wanna take God serious and his commands serious and they're trying to be obedient. They're trying to be set apart. They're trying to be that. Like So I'm trying to give them a break. But, but verse 2 says in chapter 15 that they were grumbling. The word grumbling in scripture is like biblical code for, for behavior that God hates, right? Like he, he did not like the children of Israel coming. Out. He pulls them out of slavery and in Egypt and they grumbled and complained for a generation, and God didn't like that. And so that's what they're displaying, the same sort of kind of thing where they're not thankful, they're not seeing as God sees, their life is not lining up as God sees and, and God thinks. And that's what's happening here as they come to Jesus. And they're not just mad at Jesus because he associated with some sinners. They're actually mad that he, he came, the sinners were coming to him, and he received the sinners. So these people who are living not according to God's commands, he received them, and he gave them a place of fellowship at his table. Like, that's a big deal in this culture. It's not a big deal, you, you let the vacuum salesman eat dinner with you. It's not a big deal in our, in our, in our world, right? Like it's, but it's a big deal here to invite somebody into the table. It's covenantal. It, it, it's creating a relationship, and they're not okay with this. They're not okay with it. It's because they're legalists. They're, they're religious legalists. That's what they are. And the legalist mind is so bound in legalism that it suffers from blindness to the truth. It suffers from that in a major way. The truth of the good news of the gospel, that the presence of Christ does not mean the acceptance of sin. That's what the legalist cannot wrap their mind around, that, that it means the forgiveness of sin, that it means the purification of sin, that it means freedom for sin, It means the presence of Christ means the only real power that can get rid of sin. Like that's the reality, that's what the legalist mind cannot wrap itself around. The legalist forgets the gospel. It forgets the gospel because the legalist doesn't actually feel accepted in the gospel, doesn't actually truly believe it, that they're forgiven, that they're washed, and that they uh, don't have to try and earn their acceptance by works. And and the legalist is really good at getting other people to play the same game, and that's what they're trying to do with Jesus. The legalist warns of dangers in the name of wisdom— They add a little bit on top of the biblical command and stack it a little bit higher. They become experts, experts at their favorite theology and practices and constantly treat others to their expertise and add extra biblical practice where no one benefits or is freed or grows. Rather, the ministry of the legalist crushes the human soul like that's what Jesus is standing in as he tells this story I want you to feel that a little bit that the the holy creator of the world who's on a mission to save these lost people is having a finger pointed at him the very grace that he's bringing into the world he he's experiencing the opposite, opposite of it In response to their grumbling, Jesus brings their vision heavenward, and he tells a parable of and this parable and two shorter ones to speak of the joy in heaven when a lost one is found. So let's pray this morning, and we'll jump into the text. Father, Father in heaven, we come to you by the power of the Spirit through the redeeming work of Christ. And God, I'm concerned as I read this text of my own grumbling. I'm concerned about ways that I take the call to godly character and make it more than the experience of your power-filled grace in my life. I'm concerned that I miss my calling playing a role that you've not called me to. I'm concerned this morning that a, a love for sinners is not among your church in this country. I'm concerned, God, that there's no real zeal for evangelism or for seeing lost souls found. I'm concerned that we have our favorite sinners, like some of us love to love the biker and the drug addict teen, and, and we hate the political pundit and the activist that we disagree with. Lord, all this reveals this morning the purpose of this passage, this parable that our affections and that our thoughts are not yours. And so Lord Jesus, we need those affections, we need your passion, we need your desire, we need your calling, we need your character. So God, would you replace ours with yours? Let us accept your words today. May they change us. Lord, help my thoughts, feelings, and actions glorify you today in Jesus name and all God's people said amen in Luke 15 we see the parable of the lost sheep and then we see the parable of the lost coin we have that crucial main theme that brings them together and listen that's another tip for biblical hermeneutics this morning is that if you want to understand how to interpret a parable then you have to look through the lens of the main point okay okay so you need to look through the lens of the main point because all analogies, all metaphors, all parables begin to break down at some point, right? So, so, so the, the key to a parable is what's the main point? What is it getting at? And stay on that as you begin to interpret it. And what we get here in Luke 15 is a very clear parable that aligns with these other two. You have the parable of the lost sheep that leaves the fold, and, 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 and the shepherd leaves the fold and goes and looks for the lost sheep, and he finds the lost sheep. He delights in it, and he, he picks it up, and he puts it on his shoulders, and he brings home this lost sheep, right, to the sheep fold. It's the same sort of idea in the parable of the lost coin as a woman who's lost her financial well-being and searches and searches and then catches the glimmer of, of that coin and then as you know, runs and grabs uh, the coin and rejoices that it's found. So, so we, it's clear what Jesus is talking about this morning. We see the similar pattern today emerge from our text in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, I didn't have an inheritance, but I imagine if I did, I would have been this young man. Give me that. I think I could do something with it, right? Like, give that to me. Give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, I wonder between that, like what that comma represents, right? Like the little gap between, and he took a journey into the far country. Like in his mind, did he think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna multiply this wealth? Like I'm gonna just kill it, you know? Like I, I, we don't get to know that, but I just sort of wonder did he think he had sort of life by the by the handlebars and he was just going to kill it. And the next verse is or the next little part of this this verse is and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, nothing left, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Maybe the lowliest thing that you could do. And he was longing to be fed with the the pods that the, the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So we're introduced to the players. You got the father, you got the son who becomes the prodigal. We'll call him the lost son, right? Like that's that's how we, and we have an older brother. We don't we're not introduced to him yes, but yet, but like as a younger brother, you have to have an older brother, right? Like that's that's who is in this story. And the younger brother's like, listen, give me the inheritance. I want to go do my own thing. We don't get to know what's in his mind. We don't. But we know and we know that he wanted to go do his own thing. Maybe that's not the worst thing that happened in this situation. But what we do know in verse 13 is that he squandered it in reckless living. And reckless living always is going to lead to destruction. Like that's the reality. You, you go against the wisdom of God. You just are reckless with your life. You're making choices that, that, that sort of just based on your, your wants and your emotions. Like that's sort of reckless, right? Like if you, if you think of like... If you get a ticket for reckless driving, what's that mean? Well, you've engaged your vehicle like in a way that thinks of no outcomes for others or yourself, and you're breaking all the laws that keep you safe and happy and others safe and whole. Like that's the idea of reckless living is he just threw everything that he had been taught and given out the window because he knows better or he wants, right? Like that's that's the vision, that's the view that we get to see of this young man who is lost. He has thrown off the father's plan for his life, the father's wisdom that he gained. I imagine that the father here in this situation, he knows how to persevere through seasons of drought. But the son doesn't yet. He decides to go it by himself, and the drought actually pays the dividend and, and, and comes calling and breaks him, and he's broke. He was unrestrained. He abandoned, not just physically, but he abandoned everything that his father had taught him. Every desire and like um, compassion filled desire for his son, he abandoned that. And he became the prodigal. He, he became the lost son. And, and, and there is a reality that every human being should, should take a step here to acknowledge that you have been in this place or that you are in this place. This room is full of prodigals or past prodigals. Now, I pray that under the power of God's word, there wouldn't be a future prodigal among you. Like, I pray that you would hear the wisdom of God's word and the call of the gospel this morning. That there would not be a future prodigal among us this morning. But we are all finding ourselves in this place at a point in our life, lost apart from God's plan for us. And that our wisdom and our desire and our zeal and our youth or whatever is like, it's not enough. It isn't enough. We're always going to find this road of destruction. And so we need to hear. We need to hear this word. We need to see how the Father responds we need to see how we're, we're, we should respond when we find ourselves in this place. And listen, I think that this, this idea of being a lost son or being a prodigal son is positional. So follow me here. It's positional, meaning that apart from Christ, you are lost to God in your sin. Okay. You're you're born that way, you you proceed that way, until the gospel of Jesus Christ grips you and you positionally change, all right? Like, that's that's reality. But there are seasons, and there are ways in which we are abandoning the wisdom of God. We are abandoning God's um, domain, his kingdom. We're abandoning that. And we sort of get lost in some little piece. And the more that we stay there, the more that the gospel becomes obscured to us. So I just want to say like this isn't just for the people who have been found by God, like like it's it's for everyone in this room. So the turning point in verse 17. He's lost everything. He's lost everything, he has nowhere to turn, he has no way of of, of like fixing his current condition. And and like God brings people to this moment and think, I thank God he did. I thank God that God brought me to this moment. And, And the warning here is you don't have to get to that place to hear the call of the gospel. Like that's the reality, is you don't you don't have to get there. Like, and if you're driving yourself there so you can learn your lesson, you are a legalist. Like, accept the grace of God this morning. Like, accept the call to not find find yourself broken and destitute in a pile of pig. Okay? Like that that's the call here. But that's where he finds himself in 17. He says, but when he came to himself, he said. Now I, I think this is substantial, and I just want to, to offer you one, one little idea here that I'm going to sort of insert here, but it's a, it's a biblical idea. He, he came to himself, right? Like the, 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 the prodigal came to himself, but not by himself. He didn't come to himself by himself because no one comes to God by themselves. That's the reality. Sproul says it this way. When the lost son hit bottom... The text said of him, he came to himself. My question is, how did he come to himself and why? What I would like to consider this morning is that the young man came to himself, not by himself. The son had no resources left to arouse himself from his dogmatic slumber, his torpid state. There was no alarm clock powerful enough to wake him up. He was already spiritually dead, but now biologically close to physical death. Despite this strength, despite the strength was left in his bones, and he came to. Now we use the phrase he came to in our English language. We think of people who have been knocked unconscious or who have slipped into a coma. In that comatose state, they do not speak. They barely move at all. Then sometimes their eyes will open and they'll regain consciousness. Then we say, they came too. They woke up. This man in the pig pen, he came too. He woke up from his almost fatal slumber. He came to himself, but not by himself. Just as Jesus said to Simon, blessed are you because you haven't learned this, seen this and understood this by your flesh and blood or by your natural brilliance. But my Father has opened your eyes. He has awakened you. He has given you the light that nature doesn't afford. He's provided you illumination that the power of the intellect cannot create. So Simon, because of this divine and supernatural light, you're blessed because you see me for what I am. Nobody ever comes to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without the divine and supernatural light. You may study theology and make A's in every course. You may have a profound, correct, theologically accurate understanding of the person and the work of Jesus, but a saving knowledge that you not only know with your head, but also it fills your soul and burns your heart And cannot happen unless God Himself visits and awakens you by that divine and supernatural light. We don't get to hear how God did this. Could have been a a multitude of ways in which He came to Himself. We don't get to see that. But we do know that Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through me. We know that. Like, that we know that a divine work here happened. We know that God brought this man to the end of himself so that he could see the beginning of God. Like, we know that is what happened. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against you, against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I love that we can see this redemptive work in his heart because everything he says is true. He, everything he says, it's true. He, 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 he is not worthy. He, he's not, and he's banking in this moment, not on himself anymore. He's banking on his father's character. Right? Like he's looking at his father. He's like, listen, he's got, he's got servants that, 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 that work for him and earn a wage, and like he treats them well. I could be a servant. Like he banks on the character of his father to not turn, turn him away. And he's contrite and truthful about, about his sin. He's like, and so he's, he's like, listen, I'm not trying to f- be cunning here with my wisdom. I'm just going to be like, hey, you love your servants, so could I just be a servant? And he's honest about the reality of a sin. Because he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I've sinned against heaven and before you. And he actually is repentant. He has godly sorrow. He has repentance. He, it's, it's marking him. He's like, fair is fair. I messed up. Fair is fair. I messed up. I won't even be your son. Just give me the status of servant. And on one sense, I love that. I love that he's just like being real. I love it. But on the other sense, when I think about us trying to apply that as Christians, I despise it. I despise it because what I think that that might do to us and the problem that this presents to us is that we don't understand our status in the gospel. The problem of accepting that and thinking like that in real life is that many Christians get stuck settling for the servant role and not living as redeemed sons of God. Like, that's, that's the problem for us this morning. On one sense, I love it because it's contrite and it's truthful. On the other sense, it's not the gospel. He's not there yet. He's not there yet. He's almost there. God's working in his life, but he's not there yet. The servant's a hired hand for a certain amount of work and gets paid a certain amount. They work and they receive, and their relationship to the Father is, is, is one of works. And that's sort of what he wants to do. He's falling into the same line as the Pharisees. But the Christian is kin. The Christian is kin to the Father. The Christian is is marked by his own identity. He's he's given that. It's not marked by his work. It's marked by who he is and his identity with the Father. And so I don't like the implications of this because we often play it small with our redemption, we end up with too many part-time Christians instead of a kingdom of royal priests that are sons and daughters of the king. So the lost son thinks this will be the basis of my relationship and my argument. And so he goes back home. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father but, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. I love that phrase, his father saw him. I sometimes catch myself um, standing with my hands on my hips. Um, so I don't know why I'm sort of embarrassed by it, but I just... I just Sometimes I'm just like standing there with my hands on my hips. I'm like, you have pockets. Put your hands in your pockets. Looks a little cooler, a little more casual. You look like you're about to do something, right? Somebody a ticket or something. Um, And I realized one time that like I come to it honestly because I was raised and, and taught how to be a man by two men, one who was a soldier and a Texas Ranger. And he always had a belt and gun on. And when he retired from that, he was a cowboy and wore chaps that had no pockets. And so he walked around and he, he stood like John Wayne, just hands on his hips. And my dad, when he was lawfully employed, um, he was a carpenter and he wore tool bags. And so so the reality is like, you can see me from a ways off. You, you know it's me. Like, who does that anymore? We were at a football camp a few weeks ago. And all the kids this year have got different numbers. And so Amy and I are sitting there looking at all these kids. And we're like, gosh, man, I wish, you know, we get some names on these jerseys. I can't tell who's who. But then your mind starts to click and the kids you know, you could distinguish. The kids that you know, you'd be like, oh, that's how Ethan sits in our stands. And that's how, like, you could, but the kids you didn't know, you couldn't. You couldn't tell who they were. I love this that the father sees him, and before his attributes and his facial distinctions are even coming into play, he knows the silhouette of a son. He because he loves and he knows the son, and then that emerges into a, a, a skip, a gallop, a trot, and he embraces and he kisses his son. He, he's compassionate, and he he loves his son, and he knows him at a distance, and and he he. He runs and he responds without protocols. And he, and he brings them in in his love. The sons return and the father shows us today, shows us today how we should respond. How we should respond to the prodigal, to the lost sons in our lives. The father demonstrates to us how we should respond, where our heart should go, and the son confesses in 21 and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Great confession, contrition, godly sorrow. It's, it's um, the right confession. He's saying the right thing. He wants to change. He's left his life behind, his old life. He wants to change. And there's conciliation, like he wants to do whatever it takes. He's willing to live with the servants. That's biblical repentance. We, 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 we often want to experience grace, mercy, love, and compassion just by saying, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and, and really what God wants is he wants to see this type of repentance In us, and this is what changes lives, this is what causes us to look at the beauty of Christ and know that it's better. Know that it's better, and we see that's what's happening. The response of the father in 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. The the father shows his response to accept his son. We call that mercy. We call that mercy. The father shows us in the robe and the ring and the shoes And the feast, extravagant grace. We we are blessed by the mercy of Christ, and we are blessed by the extravagant grace of God, meaning that God hasn't just given you mercy and he's looking past your sin. Through Jesus, like through the gospel, God has given you the favor that you don't deserve. He's put his robe of righteousness on you so that you don't look like you've lived in pig dung your whole life. Like that's what God does. He washes us and he cleanses us. He puts his ring on us that is the authority of his kingdom. He puts, his, puts shoes on us and he provides a feast, a nod to the eternal redemption, the forever redemption, not just in this moment, in this place, like the forever thing. It's the nod to the feast of the lamb. Like that's what's being demonstrated here. Mercy keeps the father from rejecting us. Grace compels the father to make it be like it never happened, never happened, which we don't deserve. And that grace shapes the rest of our lives and our identity. The problem is, is there's an older brother in the story. In verse 25, the older brother was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked them what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. I think I want to take a couple things to know of the the big brother because I think these are important one he's working hard the big brother is he's hard at work he's hard at work in the field it says and like that's great because there's nothing wrong with hard work he's hard at work in the kingdom that's awesome like that grace is not opposed to effort we should be hard at work in the kingdom of God that's not a problem but I love that it plots him there be a hard worker But in verse 28, he experiences, as he looks at what's happening, here's the music, and he sees, here's the fattened calf. Like, it's the one that they keep, and they feed it all the extra stuff so that when there's a celebration, they can all enjoy something really special, right? Like, you go to the Olive Garden, they have a fattened calf, right? Like, it's the the treat. And he's angry, blinding anger. He doesn't see what the father sees because he's angry about what he's not getting and he's maybe not even sure. He's just angry, right? Like that's the reality. It's blinding. Anger blinds us. The anger of man never achieves the righteousness of God. So I see that about him. The reason it's unfortunate is because there's absolutely no risk to the brother here. There's no risk to this brother He's not going to lose anything. Like, instead, his dad comes out and he has to deal with his anger, right? Like, that's there's no risk to him just going, Dad, I don't understand. Like, why are we doing this? He's blinded by his anger. Two, what he says next to his father who comes out to talk to him, he says, like, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young go that I might celebrate with my friends. That isn't even what's happening here. His anger is blinding him. But when this son of yours came, he's devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. One of the most dangerous things that you can do in your hard work in the kingdom and in your anger is start to compare yourselves with others. Like, that's the one of the worst things you can do. If you start to compare yourselves, you gotta stop what you're doing. You are in a downward decline. It's not a zero-sum game. Like, somehow he's like, oh, this guy's getting that attention. Like, what, I've always done what's right, okay? Like, right now you know that this, is, this ignorant comparison is leading you down the wrong road. He said to him son you are always with me and all that is mine is yours it's the lie of the serpent in the garden it's the lie of the serpent hey God doesn't want your best he isn't going to give you you already Adam and Eve already had God's identity they already had his presence they already had his favor and the lie was God's holding out on you and that's the lie here. It's like, it's, it, you're getting held out. He's going to give all this to them. You're going to be forgotten, right? Like, and so the father says to him, hey, you're already with me. All that I have is, is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so the solution... To this problem is to see how your father sees to accept his love and your own identity in him connected to him and be thankful and be glad and I think that this may be one of the biggest problems with Christian sanctification is that we're without joy and we're without gladness and we've lost the art and the ability to be thankful we're just critics in life you know Everything gets us four four or five stars, you know, like we just are taught to be critics of everything rather than to be thankful and to be glad and to let your life be, be filled with that. We're so good at seeing the deficit and we don't see the blessing. We're so good at that. And the father's inviting him in to let the spirit rule his heart and not the flesh, not the flesh. So, what do we take this morning from this passage that's useful? Um, I think a few things. I think I I want to take from this to remember that I am the prodigal son. When I look at what the older brother's doing and the the younger brother's doing, I, I want to remember that I am the prodigal son every time. I search for unconditional love where it can't be found. I want you to think about that. If you're a Christian, you've been saved for 50 years, like I want you to think about that. You become the prodigal, functionally, not positionally, right? Like functionally, you become the lost son of God, the lost daughter of God, when you search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. The Bible calls that idolatry. So, 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 so sort of put that in your pocket this week and think about, hey, where, where am I yearning? Where am I desiring? Where, as a former prodigal, like I can tell you that one of the hardest things in the world, like one of the hardest things in the, in the Christian walk is to stop being the prodigal son without becoming the older brother. It's one of the hardest things to do. It shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be, but it is. I also want to take this morning the the idea that you should never short yourself on confession. Part of why we do liturgy every week and we have a confession that you'll notice that we we have more interaction with it, with the underlying portions, is because of this, never short yourself in confession. The flesh wants to be saved from the misery of sin, but but not from sin, right? Like it just wants to be saved. It wants to do a half job with confession and repentance. We want to sin without misery, just as the prodigal wants his inheritance without the father. One of the foremost spiritual laws in the universe is that sin always is accompanied by misery. There's no victimless crime in all of creation. Creation is subject to decay because of humanity's rebellion with God. So our repentance should be forthright and con- clear and we should have godly sorrow and contrition. We should have the right confession to say the truth. We should be willing to change and willing to make up for the sin that we've created. We, we should embrace all those things, don't short yourself. Because of the robe, because of the ring, because of the fattened calf, because of all that God has to give us in grace. Remember that it was the father's gift that financed the rebellion of the prodigal. That that one of the worst things that can happen to us is for God to just sort of let us go do our own thing, right? Like that's just one of the worst things. So rem- like remember that, and that remember that. Like we you you have to question what is driving you in life and decisions. What is how are you leading yourself in your own ignorant blindness? Ask that. Ask for God's direction, for his consultation. He'll give it to you. And last, remember that the basis of this parable is because Jesus was being questioned. The older brother was asking God, Jesus, why carry on with these sinners? Why do this? And Jesus is reminding them, and he's reminding all of us, of his mission that he holds both perfect character and perfect calling together in the same um, person and in the same work. He's perfectly righteous and holy, and he's perfectly doing what God has called him to do, which John has made it clear. He's reminding them on his mission to seek and save the lost, He's reminding them that we should all be on that mission. Like, that's what we're called to do, to let the watching world know the glory of Christ Jesus and the gospel. And we should rejoice. We should rejoice at God in that work. When when the heavens rejoice, we should rejoice. What delights the Father should delight the Son. The kingdom is at work. We should be hard at work with the Father in that. And we should be glad and thankful when God moves, when he sanctifies and when he saves. We should be that, rejoicing people, glad in the work of God, glad in the work of God. Not the Pharisee, not the older brother. It's a shame that that exists inside the church. It's a shame to us. The glory of the church is that it displays the glory of God in Jesus Christ. The people are saved, the people are freed, that's, that's what the, the call of this parable is to you this morning. Be about this work. Be about this work this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you um, that you have led us. Like, I, I don't know, God, like this morning, if, if we need to be, um, if we need to just be encouraged that your grace has met us and that your, your grace has come into our lives and that we do wear robes of righteousness. Like you've provided everything that we need. And even when we squander it and we mess up, Lord, your grace is sufficient for that. So God, would you remind every human heart in this room of that? That your perfect life, that your death on the cross that your resurrection means freedom. Freedom. So help us to believe this morning. Help us to embrace our identity and calling. Because of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.